0: Craig Gauchel said, If God always met your expectations, he'd never have the opportunity to exceed them. That's a great quote. Truth is, every one of us has expectations in life for just about everything. We all do, right? We have expectations for our marriages, our jobs, our families. Our day to day lives, in fact, are full of expectations for just about everything. And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with having expectations, as long as we don't allow those expectations to dictate our responses to situations and circumstances and relationships when those expectations go unmet. That's when we can get into trouble, because when you're expecting a particular outcome uh, in a relationship or some situation or circumstance you're facing, and yet what you're expecting to happen doesn't happen right well first of all you understand that's not because god forgot you were there right it's 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 not because he was supposed to do something on your behalf and somehow he missed it right? of course god doesn't make mistakes he doesn't forget you when you're facing something big in your life and furthermore he never stops working on your behalf even though you may not see any evidence of him doing anything in your life at all at the time and that's 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 where we get ourselves into trouble sometimes because you can become so focused on your expectations for what you think is going to happen that you miss what actually is happening, right? Something far greater often that God is doing in your life that will exceed all of your expectations. And yet as Christians... Because we have a relationship with Jesus and we have his word and therefore we know things about Jesus, I think sometimes we assume that we know what to expect from him in any given situation without actually asking him first. The problem with approaching life that way, especially when times are hard, is that just as life isn't always predictable, neither is he. Okay we serve a God who cannot be defined or contained or controlled right he's a God who's not predictable or limited by our expectations and listen if you need proof of that all you have to do is turn Scripture where there are as many as 400 ancient prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. And listen, for centuries before the Messiah actually came to the earth as a man, the Jews were not only watching and waiting for him to come, but they were also diligently learning and teaching one another those same scriptures that described him and exactly how he would come. They were experts They knew more about the Messiah than anyone else on earth at the time, and yet when he finally did show up, the vast majority of them missed it completely. They didn't recognize the very person they'd fashioned their entire lives and culture to reflect. And look, despite the profound and undeniable impact that Jesus has had on the earth since then, it remains true that the majority of the Jewish community, and for that matter, humanity in general, continues to overlook the person and work of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So for the religious Jews, for instance, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. 2,000 years after Jesus' arrival on earth, the the 12th century uh, rabbi Maimonides, he's one of the most influential and prolific Torah scholars of the Middle Ages. He wrote in the Mishnah Torah concerning the Messiah, he said, anyone who does not believe in him or who does not wait for his arrival, has not merely denied the other prophets, but has also denied the Torah and Moses, our rabbi. He wrote that nearly 1,200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying we don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, so we're still waiting for him to come. The same people who were supposed to know more about him than anyone the same people whose lives and community and culture were fashioned around a messianic expectation for God's chosen ones. The same people failed to recognize him when he was standing right there in front of them. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John five thirty-nine and 40. I mean, at a glance, it's hard to fathom how the balance of God's chosen people, the ones who claimed to belong to him, could fail to recognize who Jesus actually was and what he was doing on the earth while he was right there among them. It's it's because they thought they already knew, of course, everything they needed to know about him. And so when he came and lived in ways they never expected, they ignored his voice in their lives. And to be honest... I wonder sometimes if Jesus were to walk into our churches today, would we recognize him? Because the truth is, look, he might not act or look like you'd expect him to. And that was certainly the case the first time he came, and nowhere is that more evident than in the last week of his life on earth, including Palm Sunday, which, of course, we're celebrating today, the week before Resurrection Sunday, where in just that one week, Jesus systematically shatters the expectations of everyone around him for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Right? The Jews expected a king in the line and tradition of David to come in on a war horse. What they got instead was a man in peasants' clothing accompanied by common people riding on a donkey apiece. They expected validation as God's chosen people. What they got instead was driven out of the temple by Jesus for their sin. They expected religious pretentiousness and arrogance. What they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him and cursing him and beating him and ultimately killing him. Okay, for the Jews, Jesus was one shattered expectation after another. And to the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. In Acts 17, we find the Apostle Paul in Athens teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. But listen, it was foolishness to them because the Gentiles believed in human reason above all else. Uh, George Renault said it this way, reason tells you that babies aren't born to virgin girls. Reason tells you that God doesn't become flesh. Reason tells you that Almighty God will not allow puny men to nail him to a cross. Reason tells you that when a man dies, he cannot be resurrected back to life again. None of that makes any sense. For the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. You see, Jesus was so unpredictable. He simply did not meet anyone's expectations. And in the process, most of the people who encountered him failed to recognize who he was because he was completely counter to the culture and the expectations of the culture, even the religious culture. And the truth is, not much has changed in that regard. Okay, there are are plenty of professing believers today We have evidence of it, certainly we see it on social media continually. People who are more interested in winning theological arguments based on God's word than they are with winning people's hearts based on God's will. It's exactly what the Pharisees love to do. At the same time, they're professing Christians today who believe that moral truth or justification, even biblical truth, is relative, uh, malleable, that it's flexible according to the culture or society that it's being expressed in. It's exactly what the pagan Gentile philosophers believed. And then along came Jesus, and he ruins it for everybody because he didn't meet anyone's expectations. The truth is, every one of us today has expectations concerning Jesus. We all do, which is why it's so very important for us to honestly assess what those expectations are actually based upon. Okay, are your expectations of Jesus Christ based on popular sentiment about him, or religious traditions, or even your own preferences about what you want God to be like? Because if they are, when times are hard, you can become spiritually fragmented and frustrated with a God who isn't responding the way you want him to or expect him to. Or are those expectations of Jesus based on how he actually lived his life and what he actually taught and what he's actually saying to you today because often listen when you peel back the layers of expectations that we all have about jesus you will find often that so much of what you hold to be true about him is based on things that you've been told your entire life about him by others that may or may not be entirely true Or on religious traditions that may or may not have their roots in scripture. Or on popular culture that constantly wants to tell us how we should think about God. Or even our own preferences about how we would like for him to respond to our needs. But you have to understand, Jesus isn't just some kind of sage, right? Who came to spread a philosophy that affirms our positive feelings about ourselves. He he isn't just a religious leader who came to give us a better religion to follow either. No, Jesus is a king who came to establish his kingdom in the most unpredictable, unexpected way possible. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. The revelation of Jesus, our king. And so today and next week, we're going to look at this story that we revisit this time each year as we recognize this profound day in the life of Christ. And in the process, may I suggest that we... we uh, maybe allow some of our expectations about him to be challenged in light of what he actually did and what he actually taught about himself. And of course, and what he's saying to us today, which may not only change, by the way, how we view Jesus, but may well change how we view ourselves and how we live our lives in light of who he actually is. So we're going to be reading from the gospel according to John chapter 12, beginning with verses 12 through 15. This Now, this is the moment Jesus makes his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem right before the Passover feast. Let's turn there together. John 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So, devout Jews are gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, as they did each year. Verse 12 describes it as a large crowd. Listen, uh, scholars, including the first century scholar, Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, right? he was alive and there, he actually estimates the crowd to have been over 2,700,000 people that day. So just try and picture that for a moment in your mind. I think it's hard for us to do because if you think about the movies, right, the cinematic renderings and the pictures we see of this event, Jesus comes riding in surrounded by dozens of people lining the road. And I think that's how we tend to see it in our minds, but that doesn't even come close to what this scene was actually like. The sheer immensity of the crowd gathered to hail the entrance of the one they were expecting to lead a military revolt against their Roman oppressors. It must have been a staggering sight to behold. And they're cutting palm branches from the trees and they're throwing them down on the road before him and waving them in the air because palm branches symbolize Jewish nationalism and victory in their culture in fact there are palm branches were stamped on the temple coins which dated all the way back to the time of the Maccabees during a seven-year revolt from 167 BC to 160 BC where a man a Jew named Judas Maccabeus miraculously leads Israel into victory over the Syrian occupation and upon that great victory it was such a miraculous miraculous moment for the Jewish people. The crowds trying to figure out how to celebrate this moment began pulling branches off of the palm trees and waving them in the air signifying their military triumph over their enemies. Just to set the scene to understand what's in the mind of these Jews on this day as Jesus rides in, right? The expectations of over two million Jews toward Jesus as he comes into the city and they're once again waving palm branches in the air and throwing them down on the ground before him. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. And so in anticipation of Jesus leading this military revolt against the Romans, they're also shouting a couple of verses from Psalm 118. It's one of the Psalms of ascents as they throw their palm branches down and wave them around. And we know from Luke 19 that shortly after this, Jesus weeps over the city, over Jerusalem, because of his great love for the people, which, of course, is driving him to do what otherwise would be unthinkable he's about to give up his own perfect life for them and so the jews are expecting jesus to ride into the city before millions of people chanting his name declaring him king over israel on the best looking perfectly fit and most intimidating war horse that could be found the only animal truly befitting a king and yet jesus rides in on a donkey the exact opposite of what they expected but but why right why in the world, you think about what Jesus came to do, right? to bring people to him, to create followers, right? Why in the world, given the opportunity before him to impress that many people, the people that he clearly loves, the people that he's so passionate about, why would he choose to ride into the city on a donkey? It's because Jesus wasn't coming to fulfill their expectations. He was coming to fill his destiny as a humble and compassionate savior they expected their king to be proud even arrogant but listen jesus was a humble king everything that he did he did with a humble heart in fact his entrance into jerusalem on a donkey was prophesied 500 years earlier in zechariah 9:9, which specifically describes the coming of a humble king on the back of a donkey it says rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud O daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey okay the heart of christ by the way the same heart that's supposed to be in his people today the heart of christ is always clothed in humility there is no room for ego there's no room for pride There's no room for self-centeredness or arrogance. When the Apostle Paul says we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. And when the Apostle Peter says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3, 15. And when Jude, the brother of Jesus says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. Delivered to the saints, Jude 1 3. All of these men are talking about winning people's hearts, not just winning arguments. If If you go back and read each one of those scriptures in its larger context, they all talk about showing humility and gentleness and respect and mercy in the process. Okay? By the way, true humility is not simply acting a certain way around other people. According to scripture, humility is actually the state of one's heart. The word translated as humility throughout the New Testament in the original Greek literally means a deep sense of one's own moral littleness. A deep sense of one's own littleness. That's not simply acting humble or saying the right things or even doing the right things. It's more than that. True humility is a deep sense of your own littleness, This is supposed to be one of the hallmarks of the church today. Something Christians are supposed to be famous for. Our humility. Always putting others before ourselves. Always showing mercy, knowing that not one of us, not one of us deserves the mercy that has been extended to us by God. Always letting go of our offenses. Always laying down our pride. Always admitting it when we're wrong always asking for forgiveness when we've hurt someone else, always forgiving others when they've hurt us, always being soberly aware of our own littleness in light of the greatness of the one who lives inside of us. Right? If we have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, then humility should be part and parcel of our very identity as believers and followers of Christ. Humility, our own sense of littleness should be at the very core of who we are which happens to be incompatible with the message of so much of our culture today but listen uh, Jesus didn't fit in with the culture either they wanted him to be proud even arrogant but he didn't give them what they wanted Jesus didn't give people what they wanted he gave them what they needed and Likewise, Jesus didn't send us out into the world to give people what they always want. He sent us out into the world to give people what they need. This world needs the truth. It needs the truth bathed in humility. Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers wrote, Never water down the word of God, but preach it in its undiluted sternness. There must be unflinching faithfulness to the word of God, but when you come to personal dealings with others, remember who you are. You're not some special being created in heaven, but a sinner saved by grace. This world needs the truth undiluted, but they need it bathed in humility because, because listen, you can speak absolute truth to lost people But if that message is spoken out of pride and arrogance, the only thing that they will see in that message is you. That's it. Because pride points people back to yourself. Humility points people to Christ. Just be honest with yourself. When you see Christians arguing on social media or in person for that matter, and they're being particularly arrogant or prideful, look, I understand how passionate people can be about things like pandemics and politics. Those are big, important topics that need to be discussed and acted upon. And of course, they stir many different powerful emotions in many different people. I get it. But listen to me. No matter how true or even how powerful your arguments may be about the gospel or about God or about how he will respond to this crisis or to politics or to government officials or anything or anybody else, If there is an overwhelming air of arrogance and pride in your delivery, when the person talking to you, when that person is talking to you, they're not thinking about Jesus when you speak. It doesn't matter what words are coming out of your mouth. If you're saying it in arrogance, I guarantee you they're not thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about you. Right? Because pride always points people back to ourselves. Humility points people to Christ. That's why so many people who who go out publicly screaming and yelling, arrogantly calling people out and putting them down with the gospel. It's why that generally doesn't work because when you walk by, you're not thinking about what they're saying. You're not thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about that guy that's screaming at me. Arrogance points people back to yourself doesn't matter how right you are and what you're saying, okay? Humility points people to Jesus. By the way, humility that's described in the Bible, that deep sense of one's own littleness, that's not a devaluing of yourself. That's not self-deprecating. Like, it's not beating yourself down. No, it's an ever-present awareness of who Christ is in you and what he did for you, which should result in a profound sense of worth and value and at the same time a profound understanding that without him, We are nothing. Pastor and theologian Timothy Keller says it this way. The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of myself... uh, nor less, I not, do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Let's keep reading. Verses 16 through 19. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he uh, called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Interestingly, verse 16 says that not even Jesus' his closest friends understood what he was doing or what was happening. These were the men and women who knew him better than anyone else. The people who'd been with him for years, watching him live out the gospel every single day, listening to him teach about who he was and what he'd come to do, and yet they didn't understand what was happening even though their own scriptures clearly described what he was doing and in the exact detail in which he was doing it 500 years before it ever happened. There's no two ways about it. Jesus was a misunderstood king. Why? Because he defied everyone's expectations of himself, even those who knew him the best, right? What kind of king secures the victory over his enemy by allowing himself to be killed? Logically, that doesn't make any sense. But Jesus didn't come to satisfy the world. He came to satisfy the Father. And look, if your greatest desire in this life is to satisfy Jesus Christ above all other desires, then there will absolutely be times in your life when other people, including some of your closest family and friends, will not always understand why you're doing what you're doing or saying what you're saying or helping who you're helping or going where you're going or giving what you're giving. Why? Because following Christ often looks like the opposite of what we think it should look like. And so, as we pursue his leading with true humility, other people will at times question question you. They will. They'll question your choices, your judgment, your motivation, your decisions, your actions, your wisdom. They will question the direction you're taking. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced what I'm talking about firsthand. And for those of you who haven't, listen, you can write this down and post it on your refrigerator for future reference. If you are truly following Jesus Christ, There will be times in your life when you will be deeply misunderstood by other people, even those who are closest to you. It is a fact. I've experienced it in my own life, and it was clearly evident in Jesus' life. But just listen (laughs) to what Jesus says to those who came to him. These are people telling him that they want to follow him, which is what he wants, right? Listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Like, what? I mean, at this point, Jesus sort of needs like a PR guy. Because this is not what you say to people when you want them to follow you. What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus, do you know what that means? To bear your cross is to die a horrible death. What are you talking about? For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, would not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other's a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26-33. Are you kidding me? You're saying you want, you want me to follow you, but, but this? Jesus said, that's right. You want to follow me, you'd better count the cost before you make that decision, because following me is going to cost you everything that you have. Jesus, why are you saying that? Don't you want people to follow you? I'm supposed to hate my father and mother? By the way, that's a Semitic expression. It means to love less. Jesus is saying, you're going to have to love me more than anything or anyone else in your life, including and especially yourself, if you're going to follow me. That's why you have to bear your own cross. That's why you have to allow your own will to die, so that my will can be accomplished in your life. Now, honestly... Are these the kinds of things a king says to people when he's trying to recruit an army? Jesus was misunderstood, and you will be too when you follow him because you're no longer trying to satisfy the world when you're following Jesus. You're only trying to satisfy him. And that's going to lead you to places and people and decisions and actions that people around you won't always understand. Sometimes even those who are closest to you, So listen, if pleasing other people above everything else is one of the chief motivations inside of you that drives you to do the things you do, and I'll just be honest, it's getting a little hot in here for me right now. Is this Pastor Rob? If that's you, if pleasing other people is what drives you, you're going to struggle at times in your life with pleasing God. You know why? Because sometimes doing or saying what is pleasing to God means doing or saying what is anything but pleasing to people. Okay, sometimes what feels right and what is right are two very different things. Sometimes truly loving people means doing and saying things that are not pleasing to them at all. Author Bob Goff said, loving people the way Jesus did means living a life of being constantly misunderstood. Let's keep reading verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What an interesting answer to, hey, can Jesus come talk to us? Right? So he continues to torpedo people's expectations of him. As two men come looking for him, they want to see him. And yet he doesn't even seem to acknowledge their desire for a meeting. He doesn't give them what they want to hear but he knows what's in their hearts. And so he gives them what they need to hear. Whatever the question was going to be, the answer was whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. You just go tell them that. And as they're about to find out Jesus didn't just speak this truth, he lived it. He gave all that he had, his very life for the will of the father. Jesus was a sacrificial king and there's simply no getting around this aspect of following Christ. Now, uh, that doesn't of course keep us from trying (laughs) because nobody likes sacrifice. I certainly don't, right? Forfeiting what you want for the sake of what God wants is never easy. Yet you simply cannot follow Jesus Christ without experiencing life altering sacrifice. Because following Christ means dying to ourselves. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, is the alternative better? What we have to give up compared to what we get, Is, is that better than what we give up? Well, of course it is. But that doesn't change what Jesus said. You still have to give yourself up. You still have to submit everything to him if you want to follow after him. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, Matthew seven thirteen and 14, Jesus said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He, just, he didn't leave a lot of room there for debate. Not a lot of room for alternate interpretations or lengthy discussions about what he might have meant. He simply said, if you're not willing to sacrifice your life for mine, then you cannot follow me. That was so unexpected and yet so clear that people either followed him or they walked away. Honestly, in the first century, there really was not a whole lot of in between. There was no benefit back then to sort of following Jesus. Once he made it clear the personal cost involved in following him, you were either all in or you were all out. Right? Jesus never tried to coax people into following him. He never told people what he thought they wanted to hear in the hopes they might decide to follow him. No, when Gentiles came to see Jesus. He didn't even bother to meet with them. He just said to his disciples, go tell them what it's going to cost to follow me. Namely, everything. You just go tell them that. Jesus never told people what he thought They wanted to hear to try and convince them to follow him. And yet in the modern church, we've become experts at trying to package the message and craft our church culture in a way that is the least offensive and the most attractive in the hopes of coaxing people into our churches and maybe into the kingdom of God. But that's not what he called us to do. He called us to sacrifice our lives for other people to utterly disown what we want for the sake of what he wants. And listen, ultimately, that's what's going to attract people to our churches and into the kingdom of God. When the world sees the church living and giving selflessly, sacrificing our lives of comfort and security and predictability and instead pursuing Christ with radical abandonment then when we tell people about Jesus based on that truth and the evidence that they clearly see of it in our own lives, then they will either run straight to Him or they'll run straight away from Him. But I'm telling you, there won't be much in between. Author and pastor Erwin Lutzer once said, those who give much without sacrifice are reckoned as having given little. Let's finish our story for today, verses 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled? What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Word troubled in verse 27 is the Greek word terasso. It means to be stirred up or unsettled. So just after explaining that his time to die had come back in verse 23, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. He says, is my soul stirred up, unsettled? Well, of course, we know that it was because of his prayer later in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he continues, what should I do? Should I ask the Father to spare me? Which is exactly what he does later in his prayer to the Father. And yet at the same time, Jesus understands that he must be obedient to the Father's will, no matter the cost or his personal feelings. So he answers his own question. He says, I know that it is for this purpose to die that I'm here. And so I must be obedient to my calling. Which he expresses when he says, Father, glorify your name, because Jesus knew that in death the Father would be glorified. In other words, no matter, look, no matter how hard this gets, I'm going to be obedient to my Father's will. Jesus was an obedient king, which was totally unexpected. Think about it. Who does a king submit to? Who does a king answer to? Who does a king obey? Yet Jesus denied his own will in obedience to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Jesus denied his own will in order to satisfy the Father's will, which is the very picture of obedience. And of course, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time at all, you already know how difficult that can be. It's so hard sometimes to deny what we want in deference to what he wants. But Jesus could not be any clearer on the matter. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke six forty six. In other words, you can't call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you. right? If you refuse to obey my commands, then clearly I'm not your Lord. You understand, confession without obedience is worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, Matthew 7, 21. He also said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, Luke 8, 21. And Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Confession without obedience is worthless. And Hear me. It's not that following the rules is what saves us. Not at all. We talked about this last Sunday. The people of God tried that in the Old Testament and proved unequivocally that we will never be able to follow enough religious rules to be saved. We are saved by His grace through our faith alone. Period. That's it. But obedience... Simply one of the evidences, it's one of the proofs that we are genuinely following Christ. Not perfection, but a genuine desire and ongoing effort to obey the word of God and the calling of God in our lives. Which is what Jesus, our King, demonstrated for us by his own actions, which was not only unexpected, It was downright shocking, right, that this king, this Messiah, this savior of the world would come to the earth as a man in such humility, knowing he would be so misunderstood, and yet he sacrificed everything in obedience to the Father's will, which, by the way, troubled him deeply. Right after praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done, Luke says, and being in agony Jesus was in agony over what he was about to do. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground just before he did the unthinkable. The king sacrificing his life for a world who wasn't even asking for it. Jesus defied everyone's expectations of him as he rode into Jerusalem that day. And he's been defying expectations ever since. And look, with the the world uh, today, the world today doesn't need a less offensive or a more culturally acceptable version of Jesus. They just need Jesus. The same Jesus who offered people what they needed instead of what they wanted. The same Jesus who lived to satisfy the Father instead of those around him. The same Jesus who gave up his own life to save others. The same Jesus who denied his own will in obedience to his calling. He lived a life that no one expected and yet his calling. He's calling you and he's calling me to live that very same kind of life today no matter how bad our circumstances may be or may become, no matter what happens in our country or in our leadership, because his word never changes no matter what we are afflicted by, and he never changes no matter how much we do. Which means we don't live our lives according to what the news says or what politicians say, or what our fear is telling us, or even what our own personal preferences may be. No, we live according to the calling and command of our King, Jesus Christ. And look, uh, sometimes people won't recognize you when you live that way, which is okay, because they didn't recognize Jesus either. Because His life... Had absolutely nothing to do with satisfying other people's expectations of him. And guess what? Neither does yours. Let's pray.